Section 2 of The Flight of the Heron by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eileen. Part 1. Through English Eyes. Chapter 1. Quote. One of them asked how he liked the Highlands. The question seemed to irritate him, for he answered, How, sir? Can you ask me what obliges me to speak unfavorably of a country where I have been hospitably entertained? Who can like the Highlands? I like the inhabitants very well. End quote. Boswell, Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides. Chapter 1 In all Lochaber, perhaps in all the Western Highlands, there was no more bored or disgusted man this 16th of August than Captain Keith Wyndham of the Royal Scots, as he rode down the Great Glen with a newly raised company of recruits from Perth, and no more nervous or unhappy men than the recruits themselves. For the first time in their lives, the latter found themselves far north of the Highland Line, beyond which, to lowland as well as to English mines, there stretched a horrid region peopled by wild hill tribes, where the king's writ did not run, and where, until General Wade's recent road-making activities, Horsed vehicles could not run either. Yesterday only had they reached Fort Augustus, two companies of them, and this afternoon, tired and apprehensive, were about halfway through their thirty-mile march to Fort William. As for the English officer, he was cursing with all his soul the young adventurer whose absurd landing on the coast of Moidart last month had caused all this pother. Had it not been for that event, Captain Wyndham might have been allowed to return to Flanders, now that his wound of Fontenoy was healed, to engage in real warfare against civilized troops, instead of marching through barbarous scenery to be shut up in a fort. He could not expect any regular fighting, since the savage hordes of these parts would probably never face a volley. Nevertheless, had he been in command of a column, he would have judged it more prudent to have a picket out ahead. But he had already had a slight difference of opinion with Captain Scott, of the other company, who was senior to him, and, being himself of a temper very intolerant of a snub, he did not choose to risk one. Captain Wyndham had no great love for Scotsmen, though, ironically enough, he bore a Scottish Christian name and served in a Scottish regiment. As it happened, he was no more responsible for the one fact than for the other. It was hot in the Great Glen, though a languid wind walked occasionally up Loch Lochy, by whose waters they were now marching. From time to time, Captain Wyndham glanced across to its other side and thought that he had never seen anything more forbidding. The mountain slopes, steep, green, and wrinkled with headlong torrents, followed each other like a procession of elephants. And so much did they also resemble a wall rising from the lake that there did not appear to be space for even a track between them and the water. And, though it was difficult to be sure, he suspected the slopes beneath which they were marching to be very nearly as objectionable. As a route in a potentially hostile country, a defile, astonishingly straight, with a ten-mile lake in the middle of it, did not appeal to him. However, the mountains on the left did seem to be opening up at last, and General Wade's new military road, upon which they were marching, was in consequence about to leave the lake and proceed over more open moorland country, which pleased Captain Wyndham better, even though the wide panorama into which they presently emerged was also disfigured by high mountains, 
in particular by that in front of them, which he had been told was the loftiest in Great Britain. And about twelve miles off, under those bastions, lay Fort William, their destination. But where was the river, which, as he knew, they had first to cross? In this wide, rough landscape, Captain Wyndham could not see a sign of it. Then, farther down the slope, and about a mile ahead of them, he discerned a long, thick, winding belt of trees, and remembered to have heard an officer of Guise's regiment at Fort Augustus say last night that the Spion, a very rapid stream, had carved so deep a channel for itself as almost to flow in a ravine, and that Wade must have had some ado to find a spot where he could carry his road over it. He had done so, it appeared, on a narrow stone structure whose elevation above the riverbed had earned it the name of High Bridge. Indeed, the Englishmen now saw that the road which they were following was making for this deeply sunken river at an angle which suggested that General Wade had had little choice in the position of his bridge. Ahead of Captain Wyndham, on his mettlesome horse, the scarlet ranks tramped down the gently sloping road through the heather. Ahead of them again, at the rear of the foremost company, Captain Scott sat his white charger. The English officer looked with an unwilling curiosity at the great mountain mass over Fort William. It actually had traces of snow upon it. In August. What a country. Now, in Flanders. Oh, what the devil was that? It was unmistakably, the skirl of a bagpipe, and came from the direction of the still invisible bridge. But if the bridge was not to be seen, something else was. Tartan-clad forms moving rapidly in and out of those sheltering trees. Evidently a considerable body of Highlanders was massing by the river. The senior officer halted his men and came riding back. Captain Wyndham, I believe there is an ambush set for us down yonder. It does not sound like an ambush, he gad, replied his colleague rather tartly, as the heathenish skirling grew louder. But I certainly think there are Highlanders posted at the bridge to dispute our crossing. I'll just send forward a couple of men to get some notion of their numbers, said Scott, and rode back again. Keith shrugged his shoulders. <laughs> Somewhat of a tardy precaution, he thought to himself. A sergeant and a private were thereupon dispatched by Captain Scott to reconnoitre. Their fate was swift and not encouraging, for they had not gone far, ere, before the eyes of all their comrades, they were suddenly pounced upon by two Highlanders, who, with a yell, darted out from the trees and hurried them out of sight. The intimidated recruits began to shuffle and murmur. Captain Wyndham spoke vigorously to his subaltern, and then rode forward to consult with his senior. Captain Scott wheeled his horse to meet him. This is uncle awkward, he said, dropping his voice. And the Dale knows how many of those fellows there are down yonder. But do you observe them, Captain Wyndham, skipping about like conies among the trees? The bridge, I've heard, is uncommon narrow and high, with naught but rocks and torrent below. I doubt we can get the men over. Oh, we must, retorted Keith. There's no other means of reaching Fort William. The royals, to hesitate before a few beggarly cattle thieves. Alas, the royals did more than hesitate. Even as he spoke, there were signs that the half-seen cattle thieves on the bridge were preparing for a rush, for loud orders could be heard, and the piping swelled hideously. And at that, the scarlet-clad ranks on the slope wavered, broke, turned, and began to flee up the rise as fast as their legs could carry them. It was in vain that their two captains endeavoured to rally them. 
A man on a horse cannot do much to stem a flood of fugitives, save perhaps on a narrow road, and here the road had unlimited space on either side of it. Helter-skelter the recruits ran, and despite their fatigue and their accoutrements, never ceased running for two miles, till they stopped, exhausted, by Lochlocky's side once more. By that time Captain Wyndham was without suitable words in which to address them. His vocabulary was exhausted. Captain Scott was in like case. There was another hasty consultation beneath the unmoved stare of those steep green mountains. Scott was for sending back to Fort Augustus for a detachment of Guise's regiment to help them force the bridge, and Captain Wyndham, not seeing what else was to be done, concurred in this opinion. Meanwhile, the recruits should be marched at an easy pace in the direction of Fort Augustus to their junction with these reinforcements, which were, of course, to come up with all speed. There had been no sign of pursuit by the successful holders of the bridge, and it might be hoped that in a little the morale of the fugitives would be somewhat restored. Captain Scott thereupon suggested that Captain Wyndham should lend one of the lieutenants his horse, which was much faster than his own white charger, no other officers but they being mounted. But Keith objected with truth that a strange rider would never manage his steed, and offered to make over his company to his lieutenant, and himself ride back to Fort Augustus, if Captain Scott thought good. And Captain Scott hastily agreed to what both officers felt was a somewhat unusual course, justified by circumstances. To a man who, three months ago, had borne his part in the wonderful retreat at Fontenoy, that epic of steadiness under fire, and who had even been complimented by the Duke of Cumberland on his conduct, the last half-hour had been a nightmare of shame, and Keith Wyndham, glad to be able to extricate himself from it with the confidence that he was not abandoning his men on the eve of a fight, set spurs to his horse with great relief. He had gone about five miles along the loch, always with those abominable mountains on either side of him, when a report echoed soundingly among them, and a bullet struck the road a little ahead of him. His pulling, nervous horse reared and plunged, and Keith swore. He was not unobserved, then, and might very well be picked off by some unseen marksman up there. Bullets, however, did not discompose him like cowardice, and, cramming his hat farther down upon his head, he merely urged the animal to greater speed. In the next few miles, as occasional bullets winged their way at varying distances past his person, Keith Wyndham began to think that the hapless royals behind him were perhaps being outflanked by some enemy marching parallel to them on the hillside and marching much faster. The prospect of their being attacked seemed by no means so remote. Still, in any case, it was now his business to go on. But when he came in sight of the village beyond the end of Loch Lochy, through which they had passed that morning, he could see armed highlanders there in such numbers that it was unlikely he would be allowed to ride through it. Gad, he thought, the route at the bridge had served, then, as a spark to all this tinder for a moment, since, under a mask of indifference and cynicism, he was a very hot-tempered young man. The sting of that knowledge prompted him to attempt cutting his way through, regardless of consequences. Then common sense triumphed. Better to avoid the enemy altogether, by crossing to the farther side of the smaller lake just ahead of him, he did not know its name, on the wide flat isthmus which separated it from Loch Lochy. If there were no ambushes on that side, he would yet reach Fort Augustus, since, as the Highlanders did not appear to have horses, 
he was safe from mounted pursuit. It became, however, a question whether he would get to the isthmus in time to evade the enemy ahead, of whom half a dozen or so, suspecting his intention, were running down the road towards him, targe on arm and broadsword in hand, to cut him off. Keith spurred his horse hard, fired at the foremost figure, which he missed, and next moment dropped his own pistol with an exclamation, his arm tingling to the shoulder. A bullet had struck the barrel, ricocheting off heaven knew where. In any case, it was one of the nearest escapes which he had ever experienced. For the moment, his right arm was useless, but here, at last, was the end of the waters of this interminable Loch Lochy. He turned his almost frantic horse and galloped like mad across the green, spongy isthmus, pursued now only by ineffectual yells, which he soon ceased to hear. The neck of land, though narrow, was longer than he remembered. There were perhaps two miles of it before the next lake came to separate him from his enemies. But, whether or no the fact of his having a fast horse deterred them from pursuit, not one Highlander attempted to cross after him. Possibly they were reserving their forces undiminished for the attack on the main body of the royals, a thought which caused the Englishman to maintain his headlong pace. Fortunately, this side of the lake seemed deserted. No man was going to stop him now. And no man did. But he had not gone a mile by the lakeside when a large grey and white object flapped up suddenly from the water's edge, almost under the nose of his excited horse. The beast shied, served, crossed its legs and came heavily down, flinging its rider against a fallen tree with a force which knocked him senseless. Captain Wyndham was not stunned for very long, though to him it was an unknown space of time that he lay sprawling in the dust by the side of the pine trunk. When he dizzily raised himself and looked about him, no human being was in sight, but there on the road, within a few feet of him, with snorting nostrils and terrified eyes, lay his unfortunate horse, trying desperately and repeatedly to get to its feet again, despite a broken foreleg. For an instant Keith stared at the poor sweating, plunging brute, then passing a hand over his bruised and bleeding forehead, he got to his own feet. There was only one thing to be done. Though the sound of a shot would very likely draw undesirable attention upon himself, he could not leave the animal there in agony. His remaining pistol was in his holster, and during the process of extracting it, he realized that he had twisted an ankle in his fall. A moment or two later, the sound of a shot went ringing over the waters of Loch Oich, and the troubles of Captain Wyndham's charger were over. But his were not. Indeed, he fancied that they had but just begun. Dismounted, his brilliant scarlet and blue uniform rendering him in the highest degree conspicuous, his head aching, and in one place excoriated by contact with a tree trunk, he saw that he could never summon reinforcements in time now. It was doubtful whether he would reach Fort Augustus at all. His ankle, as he soon discovered, was swollen and painful. Moreover, he had somehow to get back to Wade's Road when he reached the end of this lake. With his hand to his head, he glanced in disgust at the prostrate trunk with which it had just made such painful acquaintance. A detestable country, where even the wild fowl and the vegetation were in league with the inhabitants. Hearing a sound of water, he looked about, till he found a tiny ice-cold spring between the track and the lake, and, dipping his handkerchief into this, bathed his forehead. 
had he known of the seven gory severed heads which had been washed in that innocent-looking little source less than a hundred years before, perhaps he would not have done so. Hardly had he reloaded his pistol, his next care, when a distant noise, like many running feet, sent him hurriedly to the shelter of the steep, tree-clad hillside on his left. Here, among the scanty undergrowth, he crouched as best he could, while, some minutes later, a score of armed highlanders poured past on the track below him. So this side of the lake was gathering, too. Captain Wyndham waited in his concealment until the way was clear and silent again, and then descended, since it was impossible for him to keep in cover, if he meant to reach Fort Augustus. And where else should he make for? Leaning on the branch of oak, which he had broken off to assist his steps, he began to trudge grimly forward. There soon came in sight, on its rock by the lakeside, the keep of Invergarry Castle. Captain Wyndham did not know that it belonged to the chief of Glengarry, but he was sure that it was the hold of some robber or other, and that he himself might not improbably see the inside of it. It looked ruinous, but that was no safeguard. On the contrary. And here were some dwellings, little, roughly thatched buildings, but obviously inhabited. Yet all he saw of their occupants were a few white-haired children who ran screaming away, and one old woman at her door, who crossed herself devoutly at sight of him. So, to add to all their other vices, the people of these parts were papists. The next obstacle was a river, which he had to cross as best he could on insecure and slippery stones, and the difficulties of doing this with an injured ankle took his mind off remoter possibilities, so that when he was safely over he was surprised to find the ominous tower well behind him, and he went on, somewhat cheered. The sun was now getting lower, and though the other side of the glen was in full warm light, this side felt almost cold. Another peculiarity of this repulsively mountainous district. Gently swelling hills one could admire, but masses of rock, scored with useless and inconvenient torrents, had nothing to recommend them. He did not wonder at the melancholy complaints he had heard last night from the officers quartered at Fort Augustus. And what would the garrison there say when they heard of this afternoon's disgrace? Captain Wyndham's thoughts went angrily back to it. What, too, had happened to those chicken-hearted recruits by this time? He pulled out his watch. To his surprise, it was already after six o'clock. And he still had the watch in his hand, when his ear was caught by the sound of horses' hoofs behind him. He stopped to listen. The pace, a smart trot, did not seem hurried. The rider might be some unconcerned traveller. But he might, on the other hand, be an enemy. Keith Wyndham looked for cover, but here there was none convenient, as a while ago, and the best he could do was to hobble on ahead, to where a solitary oak tree reared itself by the side of the road, for he was minded to have something to set his back against, if necessary. When he was nearly there, he looked round, and saw the rider, a big highlander on a grey horse. He was not alone, for at his heels came another, keeping up with the horse with long, loping strides like a wolf's. To Keith, one tartan was as yet like another, so, for all he knew, these two might be of a friendly clan. He awaited them by the oak tree. As the horseman came on, Keith saw that he was young, vigorous-looking, and well-armed. He wore trues, not a kilt like the other. But as he came he rose in his stirrups and shouted something, in which Keith clearly caught the word surrender. So, he was not friendly. Very well, then. 
Captain Wyndham raised the pistol which he had ready and fired, rather at the horse than the rider. The young Highlander, with a dexterity which he could not but admire, pulled aside the animal in the nick of time, and the shot missed. Keith's sword leapt out, as, with a yell, the man on foot flung himself past the horse towards him, dirk in hand. But the rider called out something in Gaelic, which had an immediate effect, for the gilly, or whatever he was, came to an abrupt stop, his eyes glowering and his lips drawn back, as like a wolf about to spring as possible. Meanwhile, to Keith's surprise, the horseman sprang to earth, flung the reins to his henchman, and came forward empty-handed. A magnificent specimen of young manhood, as the soldier could not help admitting. "'I advise you to surrender, sir,' he said courteously, lifting his bonnet, in which were fastened two eagle's feathers. "'I'm sorry to take advantage of an injured man, but I have my chief's orders. You are completely cut off, and moreover, your men are all prisoners. Indeed, Captain Scott is at this moment in Lucille's custody. If you will give up your sword, I shall be honoured to take you into mine.' "'How the deuce you will!' exclaimed Keith, secretly astonished at the polish of his manner. "'A man who wore a plaid. "'And who are you, pray?' "'Cameron of Ardroy,' answered the young man. "'Lucille's second cousin,' he added. "'Oh, I don't care whose second cousin you are, Mr. Cameron of Ardroy,' returned Captain Wyndham to this. "'But if you think that you're going to have my sword for the asking, you and your cutthroat there, you are vastly mistaken.' For provided.' But it was a big proviso, that the two did not rush upon him at once. He thought that he could deal with each separately. Splendidly built as this young Highlander was, lean, too, and doubtless muscular, he probably knew no more of swordplay than was required to wield that heavy basket-tilted weapon of his, and Captain Wyndham himself was a good swordsman. Yes, provided Lucille's second cousin did not use the pistol that he wore, which so far he had made no motion to do and provided that the wolf-like person remained holding the horse. Oh, "'Come on and take me,' he said provocatively, flourishing his sword. "'You're not afraid, surely, of a lame man.' And he pointed with it to the rough staff at his feet. Under his tan, the large young Highlander seemed to flush slightly. "'I know that you are lame, and your forehead is cut. "'You had a fall. I came upon your dead horse. "'That is why I do not wish to fight you.' Give up your sword, sir. It is no disgrace. We are two to one, and you are disabled. Do not, I pray you, constrain me to disable you further. Oh, hang the fellow! Why did he behave so out of his caterin's row? Oh, you are considerate, indeed, retorted Captain Wyndham mockingly. Suppose you try first whether you can disable me further. And now, Mr. Cameron, as I don't intend to be stopped on my road by mere words, I must request you to stand out of my way and rashly, no doubt, since in so doing he no longer had one eye on that murderous-looking gilly. He advanced, sword in hand, upon his reluctant opponent. Frowning, and muttering something under his breath, the young man with the eagle's feathers at last drew his own weapon, and the blades rang together. Thirty seconds of it, and Keith Wyndham knew that he had attacked a swordsman quite as good, if not better, than himself. Breathing hard, he was being forced back to the trunk of the oak again, and neither his aching head nor his damaged ankle was Holly to blame for this. Who said that broadsword play was not capable of finesse? 
This surprisingly scrupulous young barbarian could have cut him down just then, but he drew back when he had made the opening. The certitude of being spared irritated the soldier. He lost his judgment and began to fight wildly, and so the end came, for his sword was suddenly torn from his hand, sailed up into the oak tree above him, balanced a moment on a branch, and then fell a couple of yards away, and his adversary had his foot upon it in a second. As for Keith Wyndham, he leant back against the oak tree, his head all at once going round like a mill-wheel, with the noise of a sluice, too, in his ears. For a flash, everything was blank. Then he felt that someone was supporting him by an arm, and a voice said in his ear, "'I'll drink this, sir, and accept my apologies. But indeed you forced me to it.' Keith drank, and, though it was only water, sight was restored to him. It was his late opponent who had his arm under his, and it was looking at him with a pair of very blue eyes. "'Yes, I forced you to it,' confessed Captain Wyndham, drawing a long breath. "'I surrender. I can do nothing else, Mr. Cameron.' "'Then I will take you home with me, and your hurts can be dressed,' said the Highlander, showing no trace of elation. "'We shall have to go back as far as the pass, but fortunately I have a horse.' Lachun, Horvuntech. And the gilly, scowling, brought forward the grey. His captor loosed Keith's arm and held the stirrup. Can you mount, sir? But I'm not going to ride your horse, said Keith, astonished. It will not carry two of us. And what will you do, yourself? I? Oh, I will walk, answered the victor carelessly. I assure you that I'm more accustomed to it. But you would never reach Ardroy on foot lame as you are. And, as Keith hesitated, looking at this disturbing exponent of Highland chivalry, the exponent added, hesitating a little himself, There's only one difficulty. If you are mounted, I fear I must ask you for your parole of honour. Oh, I give it you, and that willingly, answered Keith, with a sudden spurt of good feeling. Here's my hand on it, if you like, Mr. Cameron. End of section 2